Hey there. Thanks for joining us at Risen King Church for our weekly sermon podcast. We pray you meet God and know that you are loved today. Be sure to visit us at risenking.life to take all of your next steps and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Enjoy the message. This week we, we hit on something that's really essential, and, and it's the idea that you are going to have to flourish while you're experiencing loss. And what hit me this week, um, Hebrews chapter 12 talks about that you are to run the race that is marked out for you. And I never noticed that the, the Greek word there for race is the word agon. Now it was used for wrestling contests, for running a race, it was used for any kind of challenge type of thing, but the word agon is the word we get agony from. So the idea there is that you must run the agony that is marked out for you. And why I say that is because the Bible says you are going to face loss. You're going to face challenges. Your faith is going to be contested, sometimes even protested. But you must be able to run that race well. And the second word that was there that I hadn't noticed so fully before is the word for training. Is that God in every circumstance in your life, every person he brings into your life, is training you, instructing you, even correcting you. And the word that's used there is the word gymnesto, which is the word we get gymnasium from. So whether you like it or not, God is taking you to the gym. Now here's, here's the thing. There's a, there's a kind of a strange sort of thought pattern out in the Christian world that if you do the right things, all the right things happen. If you have all the right faith, then nothing bad's gonna happen to you. Let me tell you, you will be sorely disappointed if you believe that. Jesus was totally innocent, yet lost everything for you. So he did all the right things and was destroyed for it. You are not greater than your master. And God will not allow you to waste these sorrows or these suffering. As a matter of fact, suffering and sorrow becomes something of eternal glory for you if you do not resist. But the question is, will you be like so many other people who are so shocked all the time when life doesn't go the way you expect it to go. You see, a lot of times it's not the suffering that's such an issue, it's our reaction to the suffering. If it turns us into self-pity, if it turns us into more anxiety, if it turns us into other things, what is being revealed is important. Because life doesn't really produce anxiety, it reveals the anxiety. Life doesn't really produce your anger. It reveals the reservoir of anger that you've not dealt with. God is not willing for you simply to repress or suppress. He wants you to get free. And in order for you to flourish, it cannot be fake. So the Apostle Paul, when he writes to the Ephesians, he's in the middle of one of the greatest theological treatises ever, and he stops. And he says, 
I got to tell you how to deal with suffering. I got to tell you how to succeed in life when there's no possible way that you can do it except supernaturally and miraculously. And so this morning, I want us to read together Paul's teaching about how to flourish even when life is not conducive to flourishing. I really believe that, that the purpose of God in your life, everything that he's doing in the gym of life, is that you have capacity to flourish. Jesus said, I came that you might have life, that you might have it abundantly. So here's what I'd like us to do, is to read how Paul, who was suffering for the Lord Jesus' sake, writes about how to encounter that suffering and turn it into glory. So would you read this with me? I like it when the church reads God's word out loud. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Now, the Apostle Paul in this chapter kind of digresses in a sense from his incredible theological revelation to give a sidebar on how you face difficulties and difficult circumstances and how you flourish in the midst of them. He's really unpacking that the Christian life is a hard life. In other words, if the sources of your life are earthly, you will fail. But if the source of your life is actually that you've tapped into what's true of heaven, and you're beginning to live out of that place of his abundance, then nothing on this earth can destroy you. But what he, what, he, what he does that's so powerful here is he says that life can make you lose heart. Now, he uses the word dishearten, which means to lose your heart. Now, your heart is everything. Your heart is not just your emotional center, though it is your emotional center. Your heart is the control center of your entire being. And because your motivation for doing things is everything, when you lose heart, you lose the will to actually live. You may survive, you may get by, but you've lost the motivation, you've lost the wind in your sails. And so the Apostle Paul says that you're going to face things that will make you lose heart, but he's saying here's how you don't lose heart. Now one of the things that happens is that when you suffer, you see the reality and the depth of your faith. You may be angry at God for what is happening in your life, but you are revealing in that moment that you're more in it for what God will do for you then you're in it for, for who God is to you. 
And God will take every believer through a season where he's saying, do you love me for me or do you love me for my blessings? And the, the demonic realm, the satanic realm, is, is convinced you only love God for the blessings. If he takes away his blessing, Satan says, you will curse God. Now, if you are, if you are a true Christian, that ought to make you mad. That the enemy thinks you have a price. That the enemy thinks you love God only, only selfishly. And yet, what happens is that often in life, it proves that we only love God for what he does for us. Because when he isn't servicing us properly, we turn away from him and we turn back to the things of this world. See, the question that, I, that has to be asked in the default settings of your being, when you're hurting, what do you go to? When you need soothing, what do you go to? When you need comfort, what do you go to? Because those go-to places reveal whether an idol has your heart or God has your heart. Because what you go to when you're hurting is something you're choosing. No one's choosing it for you. No one's choosing it for you. You're choosing and you're saying, I trust this to comfort me. I trust this to soothe me. Now, one of the, one of the issues is that not only are we faced with our own suffering, which many of us can bear up to pretty well, but when the ones we love are suffering, that sometimes takes all the heart out of us. And so what Paul is saying here is he's a prisoner at this moment. He's, he's lost his personal freedom. He's no longer doing what he did. He used to go and he'd go into a region and within a very short amount of time, he would raise up a church and he would train elders and he would train leaders and then he would move to the next, next town. And everywhere he went, the presence of God went with him and a living church was being produced even as Paul went from town to town. And suddenly his freedom is completely taken away and now he's locked up to a Roman guard. Every minute of his day, he's chained to some soldier. And so they're hurting for Paul. They're hurting because here's the greatest man they ever met and his life is in prison. How can this, how can this in some way you know, be logical that the man most useful to their lives, their spiritual lives, is now locked away in prison. And so they're suffering because Paul is suffering. And Paul is saying, do not let this take the heart out of you. Now, are you tracking with me a little bit here? Yes. So the, the issue then becomes this. When I look at life, do I look at life according to the wonder of God's grace or do I look at life and say, I don't deserve this, or I do deserve that? Now, you've got to track with me this. If you ever have said something like, man, I really didn't deserve to be treated like that, then within you is this part of you that's still connected to judgment. It's still connected to performance. It's still connected to what you think you deserve and what you think you don't deserve. And let me tell you what'll happen. 
when life comes at you and you still have this kind of law orientation or this kind of judgment orientation, then it will knock your faith for a loop. Because there's always going to be things that come and you say, I didn't deserve that to happen. I didn't deserve to be treated that way. Or things happen and you go, oh, but I really deserved that. I really worked for that. I really earned that. Why didn't I get that? Why didn't that happen for me? You see, as long as you're still operating in the realm of wages, as long as you're still operating in the realm of performance, then you're not going to be able to survive when it doesn't happen the way you want it to happen. And you're not going to be able to tolerate the people in your life who will not do what you want them to do. See, this is, this is the only way that a believer can survive and thrive in a world of chaos is to say, I live in the wonder of the grace of God. Now, here, here's the issue. The issue is really kind of a simple one. If you're living in the world of performance, if you're living in the world of, of judgment and law, then you will get what you deserve. But the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. So if you want to operate in your salary, if you want to operate in what you deserve, then you deserve to die on a cross. Anything other than you dying on a cross is actually grace. Anything other than dying on a cross, separated from God, agonizing over your sin, is grace. See, the problem for most of us is we watch way too much HGTV. Especially somebody sitting over there. And if you watch those shows, and she's got me hooked on fixer-uppers and fixer-downers, all that kind of stuff. So you watch those shows and you'll hear them say over and over, this is the kitchen you deserve. Oh, you deserve open concept. You deserve a swimming pool in the backyard with a nice hot tub. You don't deserve any of that crap. But you see, if you hear that enough, you're like, why don't I have that? Man, I have a faucet I actually have to turn on for myself. I can't just tell my phone to turn it on. I don't know what's wrong with me. Man, my kitchen doesn't have a screen, and my refrigerator doesn't have a screen on it. I don't know what's in there. You can tell I watch way too much HDTV. But I'm using that to just kind of let you see what's happening is we're bombarded with you deserve. And if you don't have it, why don't you have it? But you see, that takes away the wonder of grace. And it says, why don't I have what other people have? Why does this always happen to me? Why don't better things happen to me? And so what, what has to happen if you're a believer is, is like the Apostle Paul is saying here, you have to begin to realize that the only way you're going to thrive is if you begin to get enamored, if your heart begins to get melted with the fact that you're under grace, you're not under law. Here's the beauty of this, friends. The beauty is, Paul says, 
He was the least and the worst of all people who could ever become a person under grace. And yet because he is a person under grace, he became the most effective, most powerful, most impactful man that's ever lived. Do you know what happened while Paul was a prisoner? He wrote these letters. We never get to hear Paul preach, but we read his letters. Why do we read his letters? Because he was chained to a Roman guard. You have to understand that grace means, grace means for you that you have a God who is so big, so infinite, so wise that he knows things that you don't know. And until you begin to live under grace, you will live as if you and God are equals and you equally know how your life ought to go. Do you know what anxiety is? It's telling God, I know how my life ought to go. You know what anxiety is? It's telling God, I know how other people ought to act. You know what anxiety is? It's I, I have a better idea of a future than you have for me. I don't know if your children did this, but my oldest son, he always asks why. Why, Dad? Why? Why? You explain it so beautifully, he goes, but why, Dad? After about the fifth time, I broke a vow that I made as a child because my dad used to always say, because I say so. And you realize after a while, you just can't explain to a child what you know is best for them. And that sometimes you just have to say, you have to trust me because there's no way I can communicate why this is so important to you. See, part of what's going on in our life when we begin to be enamored by the grace of God is we accept the role of child and we accept him as father. And if I'm the child, I know what a child knows. And if he's the father, he knows what the father knows. You see, there are many things in your life that if you knew what he knew, you'd realize he's been answering your prayers all along. It's just you don't know what he knows. Here's what I've learned about my prayer life. God has always answered the prayers I should have prayed if I knew what he knew. And what he usually is doing by the prayers he answers is training you how to respond to him and how to pray and how to ask and how to know. Think about this. Have any of you have wonder at your salary, do you wonder how you make so much? Do, you know, here's what, here's what John, the apostle John, said about the love of the Father. He said, behold what manner of love the Father has given to us that we should be called sons and daughters of God. Have you ever taken your paycheck and go, behold? There's no wonder to that. You say, that's what I earned. That's what I, that's what I contracted. That's what I was supposed to get. There's no praise for getting what you deserve. But you and I get to live in the wonder of grace, which means we get what we don't deserve, and he withholds what we do deserve. And so, are you with me? So we begin to have a different perspective even about the way we look at what happens in our life. So here's what Paul says, that the grace of God is the mystery hidden for ages. See, Paul begins to believe that his entire purpose and, and the meaning in his life 
is to take what was a mystery, God's grace, and begin to share it with anybody and everybody, no matter what it cost him. See, the idea of mystery is so different in the Bible than it is in our common practice. Lisa and I love to watch British mysteries. They're all neat and tidy. <laughs> the bad guys always get it in the end. You know, but in Greek, the idea of mystery is, is something that's hidden. It's something that can't be deduced. It can't be intuited. It's something that there's no way you would know except it was revealed to you by the one in whom the mystery is contained. Do you understand what he's saying here? He's saying, if you understand grace, if you have been accepted by God on the basis of his grace, it's because he revealed it to you. It's not because you're smart. It's not because you deduced it. It's not because you somehow intuited. No. The reason you can understand the grace of God and live in the grace of God is because God wanted you to understand it. Because God revealed it to you. You were so special to him. He said, the mystery hidden for the ages, I'm sharing with you. And Paul says, this mystery is the grace of God. And he said, the purpose and the meaning of my life is to reveal this mystery to others. And you understand, if life is hard for Paul, he not absolutely is convinced that the purpose of his life is worth the problems of his life. You understand, this goes against everything in our, our current culture. Do you realize you're being bombarded all the time that there is no God? Here is what it means if there is no God. It means you're an accident. It means... What one philosopher said is you're nothing more than a random collocation of atoms. So therefore, if you are an accident, then all suffering is meaningless. It's random. It's accidental. It has no design. And so even sacrifice is meaningless. It's why we live in a culture committed to pleasure. It's why we live in a culture that the only thing that matters is self-fulfillment. If I'm nothing but an accident, then there is no meaning. There is no design. But you see, Paul says there's meaning to your sorrows. There's purpose. That God has, has unveiled this mystery to you. And he gives this mystery of grace to you that you might live with meaning so that your sorrows are never wasted. That your training always has a destiny to it because it has a design. God will never waste your tears. Even in Revelation, we see that he has stored up your tears. They matter that much to him. If this is true then, you begin to understand that you are in the gymnasium of God's mysterious and wonderful grace, then I think you've got to begin to look at your life a bit differently. This is one of the things that's not easy to do because sometimes you look at, you look at, a, you look at a tragedy or you look at a trial and you go, how can good come from this? Or perhaps you say, why does this always happen to me? Why is it I take a few steps forward and this get knocked back like this? Now this is, 
What I'm about to share with you is one of the more difficult things about becoming a person who flourishes, but this is, this is the idea. If you understand exercise, what does exercise do to your body? It takes a muscle and it breaks that muscle down. And in order for that muscle to be strong and rebuilt, it has to be broken down. And so exercise, in a way, is opposition. Remember, we started with that idea. The race marked out for you. The agon, the agon were marked out for you. There's opposition to your faith. There's opposition to you flourishing. But that even that opposition becomes a means of strengthening you, becomes a mean, means of training you. You see, what you have to believe in is the trainer. John Newton said it this way. John Newton wrote Amazing Grace, but this is what I wanted you to hear. This is not going to be an easy thing to accept, but it can change your life. He says, everything is necessary that God sends. This is really difficult unless you really trust that it's the Father's love training you. This is one of the things that's so interesting to me is in Hebrews 12, he switches the metaphor from training to father's discipline. Let me explain something. A coach can't run the race for you. A coach won't run with you even, usually. But a father, see, there's this interesting thing going on in your life right now. God isn't saying, will you live your life for me? Because he knows you can't. But he's asking this question, will you let me live your life for you? Will you let me be your life? In order for that to happen, there has to be a, there has to be a part of you that begins to say, I trust you. I trust that everything you send is necessary. And everything that you withhold is not. So there are things, when you look at your life, if you could look at like Newton did and say, everything is necessary that you send, nothing can be necessary that you withhold. I have a kind of a silly illustration of this. I love to play golf. And um, I just don't, I don't have the financial means to join a country club or to be a part of a country club or any of those kind of things, but I love to play golf. And so oftentimes people who, are, who, are, who have great means will invite me to play at their country club. And I have played at some of the most expensive and exclusive country clubs around here. And when I go and play, I go, why can't I play here? Why can't I? And I go, because you're a pastor in the CMA, you know, all this kind of stuff. And I start getting really, like, I get envious, I get jealous, I get covetous. I get all this stuff because I'm like, why isn't this part of the race marked out for me? It's marked out for others, but why not for me? And immediately when that happens, I go, wow, there's still this pettiness inside of me. There's this thing that says, well, I should have what others have because I deserve it. See, as soon as you say those kind of things, you're stepping out of the wonder of grace and you're putting yourself back into, what do I deserve? And as soon as you do that, what happens is you stop trusting the training. Now, it could very well be that the father says, I'm going to train you at the best country club in America. He has the right to do that because he's the father. 
But he could also say, I want you to get your golf times off a tee off online with discounts of 50%. (laughs) And find the cheapest place around. You understand, either way, what he sends is necessary. What he withholds is necessary. If I can't train my biceps without breaking down my biceps, how do I train my faith without having my faith broken down? How do I become patient without seeing how weak in patience I am? I mean, any of you who lift or work out, when you feel the burn, you don't go, oh, I'm so weak. No, you say, I'm getting strong. See, when you begin to see that you've got impatience in a circumstance, it's not time to quit. It's time to realize that he's in your weakness, his strength is being perfected. So that when you are weak, you're actually becoming strong. But you see, because we're not grace-oriented, we go, oh, I'm so weak, I'm impatient. Oh, I can't ever do this. I don't do this right. Instead of having wonder of grace mentality that says, okay, I just lost my temper with my kids, but that just means I'm being broken down so that I can have patience with my kids. But what do you do? You beat yourself up. You go right back to performance. You go right back to guilt. You go right back to shame. And guess what? Guilt will never atone for all the psychological damage that you've done to your kids. Remember I told you, start investing in a psychological therapy fund for your kids right alongside the college fund. Either that or they're going to write tell-all memoirs about you. Are you hearing me at least? You understand how important this is? We are not people who have been enamored and melted by the wonder of grace. We're people who say, I've gotten into heaven by the skin of my teeth, but now I've got to work for it. And as long as that's happening, you're still saying, I somehow can work, earn, deserve. The, the Bible, the gospel is never against effort, but it is always against earning. Every time you say, I deserve, I didn't deserve, you're saying, hey, that wasn't necessary that that happened, God. This summer was rough for me. Not only did I go through some physical things, I went through some spiritual and emotional things. There were some things that happened that I did not expect whatsoever. There were things of humiliation. There were things of attack. There were different things that took place. And and part of me, when it happened, I was like, oh, this isn't fair. That's another deserving term. This isn't fair. How could this happen to me? I thought I'd done everything right. Why? Why? How? What? You know, all these questions started coming. I felt humiliated. I felt, I felt under attack. And as it was happening, I was like, Lord, what are you saying to me? And here's what he said. Are you embracing the cross? I was like, okay, tell me what that means. He says, that means you die to self. Yeah, but I want to stand up for myself. Die to self, he said. And I began to realize as I read certain devotional literature, I began to realize what does it mean to die to self? It means that what hurts no longer hurts. Because if something's dead, it doesn't hurt. 
If it hurts for someone to humiliate me, I still got an ego problem. If it destroys me that untruthful things are said about me, I still got an ego problem. If I'm embracing the cross, yes, I'll note and I'll notice that what's being said is not true or what's being done is not right or whatever it is. You're not going to start saying good is bad and bad is good. That's not even reality. But you don't feel destroyed by it. You don't feel hurt by it in the way that it begins to question and, and, and hamstring you and make you feel like you can't run the race anymore. You see, if it still hurts, it's not dead. And if it's not dead, it's still flesh. And if it's flesh, it will never be able to stand before God. This is not an easy message today. But what the Lord is asking of you is is so much more than just superficial saying yes to Jesus. It's saying yes to dying to self. It's saying yes to the wonder of his grace when everything in you wants to say, but I deserve this. And I didn't deserve that. And that's so unfair. And how could I be treated like that? And how could this not happen? And the Lord says, do you want to live flourishing? Or do you want to live just barely getting by and surviving? Because what will happen to many of us is when we start saying, I have to have this outcome, I have to have this protection, I have to have this happen, this result or that result, we now have entrusted our happiness. We've entrusted our strength and our joy, our peace. We've entrusted it to people, our circumstances over which we have no right to control and we have no ability to control. And when you entrust the most important things of your own person to other people and things, you will always be disappointed. Because by making something other than God ultimate, that thing will ultimately disappoint you. But you see, if God is ultimate, if he is no longer one among idols in your heart, But God is ultimate, and God is the treasure. You could lose everything, and you still haven't lost your treasure, which means you won't lose your peace, you won't lose your patience, you won't lose your love, you won't lose yourself. Now, if we press on with this a little bit, think about how difficult it is in some ways to live in this mystery which is grace. The Ten Commandments, they're not a mystery. They make perfect sense, even to the natural mind. It makes sense not to murder. It makes sense not to lie. It makes sense. The golden rule is not really a mystery. Now, that's not the New York golden rule which says whoever has the gold makes the rules. (laughs) But it's Jesus' golden rule where he says you do unto others as you would have them do unto you. These make perfect sense. So this idea of grace is really where we're beginning to say this is, this is what separates the Christian from anybody else. This is what separates relationship with God from religion. It's the mystery, you see, that Jesus, the Son of God, triumphed through his own weakness and suffering. Why am I saying that? Because you and I think if we're just so powerful and strong and in control, then, we, then we're triumphing. No, friends, you triumphed the same way Jesus did. He triumphed 
by becoming weak. He triumphed by his suffering. You and I must lean into our weaknesses, not denying them, not repressing them, but leaning into and saying, the trainer has a goal here. Anything he has withheld from me is necessary. Anything that he brings my way is necessary. This is what I'm learning as I get older, is, is God is putting me in pressured situations where stuff I have hidden or not been able to see, I'm seeing. I'm not seeing it so he embarrasses me. I'm not seeing it so I'm humiliated. I'm seeing it so I can be healed. And he will do this for the rest of my days. You are now in the gymnasium of the Father. What is necessary, he's bringing your way. What is not necessary, he will not bring your way. I'm beginning to learn to trust. This is the awesome thing of Jesus. When he was forsaken by the Father, when he became sin, and he incurred all the wrath of the Father, all the justice of God was placed on him, he never lost faith and trust and love for the Father. To the very end, his love and his faith and his trust was unrelenting. This is how you flourish. See, he, he won not by defeating his enemies. He won by losing and dying for us. See, the gospel says this, that full acceptance by God comes only through full acceptance of Jesus, his death, and his resurrection. One of the things I cannot understand, as I've been in church my whole life, is I can't understand why some churches, religious organizations, continue to be performance-based and continue to be legalistic and about you've got, to, you've got to keep this rule, keep this rule, keep this rule, that rule, when the only thing that matters is faith expressing itself in love. That's all that matters according to Scripture. And what is that faith? Well, it's the faith that you have full acceptance by God because you have fully accepted Jesus. If you have fully accepted Jesus, whatever your past is, whatever your weaknesses are, then that same acceptance that God has for Jesus, he has for you. That is why Paul, who was, he said he was the, the greatest of sinners or the least of all of us, could say, I can be an apostle, I can write these words, I can preach this gospel because it's all of grace. I mean, can, can you just see that no church can make you acceptable? No taking of sacraments, no doing these rules or this rule, and definitely no praying to someone other than Jesus can in any way make you acceptable. Even his own mother has to accept him as her savior. You must understand where religion has tried to get you to say, you've got to earn it by keeping this, this, and this. That's a perversion of the gospel. And Paul said, let them all go to hell. It's when you and I start to get it and we begin to understand and you look at yourself in the mirror and you know what, a, what an utterly evil, hidden person you are. And yet you go, I am fully loved. I am fully accepted. No longer does the Father look at me in my record. The Father look at, looks at me in the record of Christ himself. See, the gospel says that we are sinners, but we are made righteous by the gift of God. All of us, evil and separated from God, yet by his grace, accepted, loved, 
God the Father delights in you just as he delights in his own son, the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no other place where you can have the wonder of that except in the grace of God. Now, I see the music starting. Uh Uh-oh. Let me just finish up with a couple things. The first is this. I I gave this illustration to you last week. It's by a guy by the name of Mark Sayers. He says that for you to flourish, you need three things. You need freedom, you need meaning, you need relationships and community. All of this is found if you will go deep with Christ. The first thing when you deal with freedom is this. You have to, you have to, to to be free is you have to be making your own choices. So when, when, the, when the Father says, you can trust me, you have to decide in your heart of hearts, do I trust him? To surrender to God is not just grim determination. I'm gonna try to avoid punishment. I'm gonna try to avoid consequence. It's actually, as a child saying, you're my father and I trust that you know exactly what you're doing. That what you brought in my life is necessary and what you've kept from my life is necessary. But I will surrender and yield to your will willingly. Now the second thing is we've been talking about this idea of meaning. You see, what what goes on in terms of your training, in terms of suffering, in terms of persecution is you're being tested. Do you believe that the deeper identity that you have is as a child of God? Do you believe that the deeper identity that you have is is that you are the Father's delight? Do you believe, like the Apostle John, behold what manner of love I've been loved with, that I'm a son of the Most High God. I'm a daughter of the Most High God. You see, what, what happens in the testing is it's testing whether you have a deeper identity than a surface one. But the last one, and Paul makes this clear in this passage we read, He said that God has put you in an eternal community. That he has a purpose for you in this community, which is more than just feeling good, which is more than just, you know, becoming a little bit better person. That, in fact, if I can sum it up this way, please hear me. In this community, this risen king community, God is trying to reveal to the world and especially to the demons that his wisdom is manifesting in us. And, 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 and the purpose of this community is not just that you get to say you're a Christian, you're a member, or whatever that is, but the purpose of this community is that we would together reverse the consequences of the curse and the fall. That instead of racial division, there would be racial unity. Instead of oppression of women or our our negligence and abuse of children or whatever it is, that there would be flourishing for women and men and children, boys and girls all together. That we would be a community that would begin to reflect what all of heaven's going to be like when we're together. So here's what's being asked of you is not only that you conform yourself to the image of Christ personally and privately, but that you realize that God has placed you in this community in order that this entire body might be conformed to the very image of Christ so that the whole watching world and the whole demonic world will see what it will be like for all eternity when we're in heaven together. You've not just been called 
to be personally conformed, but we're called to be together, to be conformed to our eternal family. And you understand, guilt's not going to get us there. Shame's not going to get us there. It's going to have to be a choice that you make. I want to be a part of this eternal family. I want to see in my generation a conformity to the image of Christ that is clear for the demons and all the world to see that here there is racial unity, here there is cultural nobility, here there is gender equality, here there are all these things that will be true for all eternity are already true here and I'm a part of that. Ashley. 